Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, listeners, before we start the show, don't forget to enter our merch giveaway. The entry form is linked on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as at thedirtpod.com under the news heading. Yeah, so click on over, fill out the form, and you could win an item of your choice with any of the supremely nerdy designs available at our shop that Anna made. We're also thank you. <laughs> we're also going to drop the form directly into the show notes, so you should be able to access it right from your podcatcher, like right now. Look at it. You can do it right now. It's so easy. Okay, stop doing it because we got to do the show now. Pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And I've got a shout out. I got two of them. Um, This week, we're shouting out Robin and Brandon. Thank you so much for joining us on Patreon. Thank you. Yeah. So now, on with the show. In what is now a time-honored tradition, you know, we did it twice before. We can definitely call it annual. We are taking y'all back to school. In August and September, we'll have episodes with a learning or a school theme, um, some more themey than others. Yep. And we're kicking it off with a favorite topic of ours, myths, but not myths as in ancient mythology. No, we're talking myth conceptions, mythteries, myth nomers. Amber, do we really know how the pyramids were built? I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. We for sure do. Okay. But Stonehenge? The Rapa Nui heads, the Nazca lines, all those monumental earthworks. Are we sure that it was really people living hundreds or thousands of years ago that did all of that? Um, yes, we are definitely sure. Yeah, I know. Uh, Please don't weird. fire it's, me from this it's, podcast. It's weird that I'm the one saying that because <laughs> usually I'm the one that wants to like teach the controversy. Um, but we are sure. And we are here. We flipped the script. <laughs> we sure did. Uh, we're here to share the evidence and the reasons why we're sure with you, dear listener. So let's start with the big one, or ones, the pyramids, the ones at Giza. We're going to talk about the pyramids at Giza. And so (laughs) let's start with a very brief history of the pyramids at Giza. Um, We are really for sure super going to do an episode on ancient Egypt one of these days. Like it's actually like on the schedule now, but we don't want to put all of our canopic jars in one basket. Oh, that's better than what I had. <laughs> Putting all our Egyptians in one basket. Who writes this? <laughs> oh, I guess if you said Egyptians in yeah, one basket. Yeah, that's where I was going with that. Yeah, but, but you didn't do that. You didn't You didn't put the, the, the comedic hyphen. How was I supposed to know? Because I knew how bad it was. <laughs> the pyramids at Giza were part of mortuary complexes, monumental grave markers for Egyptian pharaohs. The first and largest pyramid at Giza was built by the pharaoh Khufu, whose reign started around 2551 BCE. Today, his pyramid stands 455 feet, 138 meters tall, 
It would have been a bit taller in antiquity, but it's <laughs> it's since lost much of its outer coating of white stone, and the shiny gold capstone that once sat on the top is super long gone. Um, and again, this is part of a whole complex. There were other minor pyramids, boat burials, and other stuff all around the main pyramid. Because remember, this was a place... Like there were spaces for uh, people to like worship or visit as one would uh, the marker of of a place's a person's burial. So there's well, also pharaohs were were usually deified after after exactly. death, and there there were sort of um, religious sects that worshipped yeah. them as gods. Yeah. So all of that's around there. So next to mm-hmm. Khufu's pyramid is a slightly smaller one built by the pharaoh Khafre, who was Khufu's son. So this one was constructed around 2570 BCE and stands about 448 feet tall. So like not that much smaller than his dad's, but don't worry. The barest nod to <laughs> but not don't worry. overtaking dad. <laughs> he also took the very like your grandparents like neighbor's property in Florida and put a statue in it <laughs> in yep. front of his. And so Khafre's pyramid is the one with the famous Sphinx statue adjoining it. The third main pyramid in Giza, again, there were lots of other little pyramids, workers' villages, and funerary temples, like, everywhere. So, they weren't just out in a field. Um, the third pyramid was built for the pharaoh Menkaure around 2510 BCE. Compared to the other two, Menkaure's pyramid is positively restrained at a simple 215 feet tall. That said, it's still a big structure. These pyramids were shaped from massive carved blocks of limestone and granite. So how could people possibly have done such a thing 4,000 years ago? How? 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 Um, Good news. We know. (laughs) Um, And we know because they wrote it all down and they left us evidence. The techniques used to build the Giza pyramids were developed over a period of centuries with all of the problems and setbacks that any modern day scientist or engineer would face. And we know this because there are existing pyramids that are, shall we say, clearly first and second drafts. The Pharaoh Snefru. (laughs) I'm sure in context, in the context of the Egyptian language, his name isn't funny, (laughs) but it is. The Pharaoh Snefru who ruled around 2575 BCE, was the first pharaoh, or rather, his were the first architects, to design a pyramid with smooth sides. Earlier models had been stepped, meaning flat rectangles stacked into a pyramidal shape. I think you're sort of like stereotypical like ziggurat, or a pyramid in lots of other places in the world. Yep. So, the steppy ones. It appears that Snefru's architects ran into trouble. One of the pyramids he constructed at the site of Dashur is today is known today as the Bent Pyramid, because the angle of the pyramid changes partway up, giving the structure a bent appearance. Wow. Scholars generally regard the bent angle as being the result of a design flaw. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and I'll dig up, maybe I'll, I'll dig up a photo of it and put it in the show notes because it is super bad. It is. <laughs> it is. And it, it can't have been on purpose. <laughs> By the time the Egyptians were building pyramids, they were also writing down all kinds of official court records. In 2010, a team of archaeologists discovered papyri dating to the reign of Khufu at the site of Wadi al-Jarf in the Red Sea. Text on the papyri stated that in the 27th year of Khufu's reign, the pharaoh's half-brother, Ankhaf, was the vizier, 
who is the highest official to serve the king in ancient Egypt and quote chief for all the works of the king. So he was like the um, chief of staff, chief of staff. Yeah. Yeah. Head delegator. Yeah. Um, That chief for all the king's works also had to organize and feed all the king's workers or, you know, like he probably had like committees. Yeah. 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 So he was, he was the COO of <laughs> Egypt Inc. Um, over the past few years, archaeologists have been excavating and studying a port at Giza that would have been used to bring in supplies, food, and people. The port is located by a town built near Minkari's pyramid. This town had sizable homes for high officials, a barracks complex that likely held troops and buildings where large number of clay seals. <laughs> Thank you. Used in record keeping were found. The ordinary workers likely slept in simple dwellings near the pyramid site. So it sounds like we got everything we need to make a pyramid. Estimates given by various archaeologists for the size of the workforce at Giza tend to hover around 10,000 people for all three pyramids. These people were well fed and a stubbly these people were well fed. In a study published in 2013, Richard Redding and his colleagues found that enough cattle, sheep, and goats were slaughtered every day at Giza to produce 4,000 pounds of meat on average to feed the pyramid builders. 4,000 pounds a day. It's a lot. It's a lot of meat. Um, yeah. And we think we know some of the ways that all those people wrangled those, hum- those huge pyramid blocks into shape. Ramps. Not... Mm. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nope. Not those. Not the, no, not the just allium. The, just the plans. simple machine. Yep. A couple of examples of long sloping ramps have been found near some of the quarries that produced the huge stones for the Pharaoh's building projects. Researchers think based on how the ramps were built with a central slope surface and post holes on either side of the ramp that the workers would have been able to pull blocks on wooden sledges. Researchers also suspect that the ground in front of the sledges may have been wet, helping to move the block along. Okay, so you're doing like the thing with the the water bottle, <laughs> you like shake it down to <laughs> keep it going. Yeah, okay. yeah that's just one guy's job. <laughs> it's harder once you get further up the ramp. Got to go get that water, carry it uphill. Yeah. So while we're on the subject of the pyramids, let's hit our first misnomer: Were the tombs of the pharaohs cursed? Never mind whether they hold any power or can be implicated in the death of the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. That is probably more the business of other podcasts. But did they actually exist? Were there indeed threats on the tomb walls at the entrance? Turns out the curses we think of as being associated with Egyptian tombs aren't really curses in the modern English sense at all. Curses were written in a sort of legalese, where if one commits X offense, then they are subject to Y punishment. So sure, we can call them curses if we're also going to call signs reminding us that littering is subject to a $2,500 fine, curses too. Same idea. The tomb of Penut warns would-be trespassers that doing so would render them, quote, miserable, while others suggest that disturbing the dead may result in missing out on a pleasant afterlife. This very, like... It's a nice afterlife you have here. It would be a shame if anything happened to prevent you from reaching it. So it seems that the threats of Egyptian tombs were more of a don't start nothing, won't be nothing situation. (laughs) According to Dr. Dan Porter of the National Museums Scotland, there is an example of a tomb curse in their collection. An Egyptian tomb curse, not a Scottish one, which he describes thusly. Quote, 
There is an inscription on a piece of limestone which provides another insight into the ancient Egyptian desire for the tomb to survive intact. The stone, which is around the size of a few bricks, was covered... What? The stone, which is around the size of a few other blocks of stone... Okay. Was covered with a light wash. I think he's describing it in terms of, like, contemporary masonry Contemporary building bricks? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I feel very attached to Dr. Dan Porter after reading one blog entry from, like, the... So I just, like, okay, I gotta jump to his defense. (laughs) The ancient Egyptian desire for the tomb to survive intact. A piece of that tomb is sitting in Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Looks like you just played yourself, Dr. Dan Porter. <laughs> so the, the brick-sized stone was covered with a light wash to provide a clean surface for the inscription. Dated to between approximately 1295 to 1069 BCE, the 15 lines of the inscription implore visitors to the tomb in which it was placed to behave correctly. It was a museum sign to behave correctly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a similar way to traditional inscriptions, which ask for visitors to give offerings. It's also a museum sign. please donate the inscription is written in a script called hieratic which was a shorthand form of egyptian writing to share this with you i have translated it below oh maybe i can fiddle with the with the sound here so i can make my voice all cursy and echoey maybe i won't do that for like a really like (laughs) bland curse yeah (laughs) uh it opens It is to you that I speak, all people who will find this tomb passage. The visitors are then warned, Watch out not to take even a pebble from within it outside. If you find this stone, you shall not transgress against it. They are also reminded of the power of the deceased, who are referred to as gods. Indeed, the gods, since the time of pre? Like pre-history? Pre? Is that a person? (laughs) I don't know. Okay. Indeed, the gods (laughs) since the time of pre, those who rest in the midst of the mountains gain strength every day, even though their pebbles are dragged away. Oh, I like that. The reader is encouraged to find their own space to build their tomb and not encroach upon others. Go build your own tomb. Look for a place worthy of yourselves and rest in it and do not constrict gods in their own houses as every man is happy in his place and every man is glad in his house. The inscription ends with a final warning on behalf of the deified dead, written emphatically. As for he who will be sound, beware of forcefully removing this stone from its place. As for he who covers it in its place, great lords of the West will reproach him very, 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 very much. There are no threats of death or of spiritual vengeance. Instead, we see a well-written appeal towards good behavior, which would help protect the tomb and honor the memory of the deceased. Though perhaps the mummy's gentle reproach isn't quite as snappy or headline-grabbing. So says Dan Porter. Isn't that fun? Thanks, that Dr. Is Dan fun. Porter. <laughs> it's very, very polite and orderly. Yeah, and also... Um, Clearly didn't work. What? Yeah, which just... How rude. Yeah, that that's my take on the like <laughs> centuries of looting of antiquities. Yeah, how rude! How rude. <laughs> well, let's take a quick ad break and then uh, we'll get back to some mysteries. 
It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. So we're back and let's get into the mysteries of construction once again, um, this time with the latest installment of the recurring saga. Did we just figure out Stonehenge? <laughs> Emphasis mine. <laughs> so this comes to us from the New York Times, uh, writer Franz Liszt. Not Franz Liszt. <laughs> He's really different. <laughs> no, yeah, the um, ghost of Franz Liszt wrote this op-ed piece. <laughs> it's not an op-ed piece. Um, it isn't. Lidsomania. Um, this New York Times story opens very coyly with, quote, Back in the 30s, the 1130s, the Welsh cleric Geoffrey of Monmouth created the impression that Stonehenge was built as a memorial to a bunch of British nobles slain by the Saxons. Geoffrey tells us that Merlin, the wizard of Arthurian legend, was enlisted to move a ring of giant mystical stones from Mount Calarus in Ireland to what is commonly believed to be Salisbury Plain, a chalk plateau in southern England where Stonehenge is located. Back in the 50s, the 1950s, a chunk of rock went missing from the magical tumble of megaliths that now compose Stonehenge. The chunk, a three and a half foot cylindrical core, had been drilled out of one of the site's massive sarsen stones during repairs and taken home by an employee of the diamond cutting firm that carried out the work. Intrigue. The core, recently repatriated after 60 years, turned out to be pivotal to an academic paper published on Wednesday in the journal Science Advances. <laughs> the study pinpointed the source of the Sarsens, a mystery that has long bedeviled geologists and archaeologists. Two kinds of stones make up the roughly 5,000-year-old monument known as Stonehenge. A smaller inner horseshoe consists of two to four ton blocks of varied geology called bluestone after the bluish-gray hue they have when wet or freshly broken. The Sarsens stand... stand uh, the Sarsens stand so... It's a lot of S's in one little this, phrase. This is a sibilant, heavy sentence. <laughs> the Sarsen's sandstone slabs that weigh 20 tons on average form Stonehenge's enormous central horseshoe, the uprights and lentils of the ragged outer circle, as well as the outlying heel stone, slaughter stone, and station stones. <sighs> and so these are very much the names given to these stones long after they were in use by people who fancied the site to be the mystical home of like druids and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Geologists determined uh, nearly a century ago that the blue stones were dragged, carried, or rolled to Stonehenge from somewhere in the Presley Hills in western Wales, some 180 miles away. Last year, a team of archaeologists led by Michael Parker Pearson of the University of College London revealed evidence of the exact location of two of the quarries. David Nash, a geomorphologist at the University of Brighton and lead author on the new Sarsen study, has traced the source to, of almost all the Sarsens to West Woods. It's a place. It's also it's it's also a place in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the southern edge of the Downs and several miles closer to Stonehenge, his team analyzed the geochemical fingerprint of the 52 sarsens that remain in situ at the ancient site. The breakthrough came last summer when long lost core from Stone 58 was returned to English Heritage, the charity that manages Stonehenge. Glad they clarified. Because if you just say English heritage, it makes it seem like a like a nationalist party. Yeah. No, in this case, it's Stonehenge people. Okay, great. The Sarsen Cylinder offered Dr. Nash the unique opportunity to analyze a sample unaffected by surface weathering, which can slightly alter the chemical composition. Drilling through the ancient stones is now discouraged. <laughs> With a, a politely worded sign yeah. that someone has taken and that put in now. an Egyptian museum. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) To determine its chemical makeup, researchers used a variety of non-invasive spectrometry Mm -hmm. techniques. (laughs) Once the geochemical signature was established, they sampled sarsens from 20 locations across southern England, including six on the downs. A data set... (laughs) (laughs) The BBC sentence ending. This sentence is over. (laughs) sorry a data set comparison resulted in a single match west woods a location about 15 miles from stonehenge um so -hmm. that article goes on for a bit um and and then ends on two very labored jokes which you know it's something if we're calling them out as such we would never Um, never we would never we would never do something like that um but if you are curious the link will be in the show notes so you can check that out Mm -hmm. now say sinful caesar (laughs) sipped his snifter seized his knees and sneezed (laughs) next up when something that is kind of a mystery and kind of a myth nomer um in the words of a 2003 headline from the guardian the actual guardian we owe it all to super stud Genghis. Yep. So um, Genghis Khan, who you may call Genghis Khan, but it's Genghis. It is in fact Genghis, which I believe I learned on the podcast like <laughs> two, like a, a year ago. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that I get to be like a real pedant jerk about. And be like, um, actually, let's... <laughs> I mean, it's good to pronounce people's names correctly. Yeah, yeah. And so um, Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire have up until now been a bit of a blind spot on the dirt. And someday we will talk about the archaeology of 13th century Asia, specifically like sort of under this empire. But for now, we're looking only at one specific aspect of the man alternately known for murdering 1.7 million people in an hour – untrue, but not for lack of trying, and for having more direct descendants than anyone else on Earth. So 
A 13th century Persian historian did the math and estimated that within a century of Genghis's conquest of Asia, he was responsible for upwards of 20,000 direct descendants. So fast forward more than seven centuries more, and that number grew to 16 million male descendants. And so some people decided to do some science about this. To quote the paper. (laughs) Why don't you go do science about it? (laughs) To quote the paper. (laughs) To quote the paper on, uh, on the study entitled The Genetic Legacy of the Mongols. Quote, we have identified a Y chromosomal lineage with several unusual features. It was found in 16 populations throughout a large region of Asia, stretching from the Pacific to the Caspian Sea and was present at a high frequency. Approximately 8% of the men in this region carry it, and thus it makes up point, it makes up approximately 0.5% of the world total. The pattern of variation within the lineage suggested that it originated in Mongolia around a thousand years ago. Such a rapid spread cannot have occurred by chance. It must have been the result of selection. The lineage is carried by likely male line descendants of Genghis Khan, and we therefore propose that it has spread by a novel form of social selection resulting from their behavior. I mean, huh. sure. So that is so many people. <laughs> it's very many people. So that, yeah. And yet, to say that Genghis is the only person in human history to spread his Y chromosomes around enough to have a noticeable impact on today's human population is, you guessed it, not true. What? I know. <laughs> in 2015, a team of researchers put, to, put forward a list of 10, 10 genetic legacies that just won't quit. They argued that while many people have lots of children, in order to really get somewhere in cultivating a lineage, it's important to have it's important for those children to have lots of children and for those descendants to fan out over a large geographic region. That's one of the keys of Genghis Khan's genetic success. But who were these other guys? Who is he? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go through like all of them because I, I couldn't find it's, it's all a of them. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. Also, so, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna highlight two. Okay, um, the list includes Geokanga, the grandfather of the founder of the Qing Dynasty, who was thought to have 1.5 million direct male descendants, mostly in northeastern China. And so, it's so many people with that in in that lineage's case, there are um, like genetic traits that do not exist in the Han Chinese population, but they mm-hmm. do exist in a couple um, minority um, ethnic populations in Northeastern mm-hmm. China. And they all seem to stem from that guy. <laughs> and another is a member of the O'Neill <laughs> dynasty of fifth century CE Ireland. So Ireland has a very strong and very old tradition of patrilineal surnames, and there's probably an overlap between the surname O'Neill and direct descendants of this dynasty. So this is um, uh, like Neil of the Nine Hostages. Okay. That one. That one. Yes. Neil of the Nine Hostages. Yes. Um, so... But the researchers did more than just consult the phone book. And in 2006, a study published in the American Journal of Human Genetics entitled 
a Y chromosome signature of hegemony in Gaelic Ireland, says, quote, the fact that about one in five males sampled in northern northwestern Ireland is likely a patrilineal descendant of a single early medieval ancestor is a powerful illustration of the potential link between prolificacy and power and of how Y chromosome phylogeography can be influenced by social selection, end quote. Mm. One, one in five. Yeah. One well, in okay, five. So, yeah. And one of the main things that's probably contributing to these sort of select few having so many offspring is it seems like these were people in power. And that is where, you know, your descendants are more likely to survive simply because you have the stuff. You have access to whatever medical care yeah. is available at the time. You have access to food and, you know. Well, and, better living conditions, and also you have, um, you ha- you also are more likely to have access to something that can be inherited. Yeah, so having an heir is important. Yeah, and and tracked. Yeah. Kind of so yeah, one in one five. In five. <laughs> think about that. So we're gonna take a short right. break, but you go think about that. <laughs> This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. <laughs> Did you think about it? We've thought about that. I did. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. The other thing I'm thinking about, because it (laughs) won't stop rattling around in my brain, is something I saw on Twitter this morning. Oh, no. And it was... Oh, no. No, it's it's not bad. It's funny. We don't look at at the same Twitter. uh, (laughs) It was just someone asking if people would still come to their talks if they pronounced testosterone like an Italian pastry. (laughs) Testosterone. So it's very unfair of me to take this joke and to not uh, credit it to the person who made it. So this is Sarah Winicky, uh, and they're, they're at at S-K-W-I-N-N-I-C-K-I on Twitter. So uh, Sarah said funny things, and I liked it. All right. So our Australian listeners probably know that this year marks the 250th anniversary of British explorer and naval captain James Cook showing up and bopping along the coast of what is today Australia. The Australian National Maritime Museum, or the Museum, their branding. Not I my love joke. it. I love it. It's it's so cute. <laughs> well, the Museum published a great article correcting myths about the man that most certainly didn't discover the continent, which we will include in the show notes. Also, I'm including in the show notes an ABC story about an annual reenactment that happens in Cooktown, um, which is like 
the far north of Australia, which commemorates the meeting between Cook and the traditional owners of the land and recreates what is described as, quote, the first act of reconciliation between indigenous and non-indigenous people, end quote, in Australia, uh, when a Gugu Yemitur elder prevented major bloodshed by presenting Cook with a broken tipped spear as a peace offering after an altercation that was started by the crew of the Endeavor. And so I just want to mention that here and shout out the fact that I'm including it because it's a really interesting story that I don't really know how to feel about. Yeah. Because, well, and so you can decide how you feel about yeah. it, listeners, if you check out our show notes. Yeah, just check that out. So back yeah. to the point. Anna? All right. Nine years after the events reenacted in Cooktown originally took place, Cook attended what most people think of as his final dinner party. A popular myth is that the Hawaiians encountered Cook, believed him to be a god, and so killed and ate him as a form of worship. But you're savvy, right? You know what actually happened. Cook was no god, and everyone knew it. He was attempting to kidnap a Hawaiian leader when everyone finally had enough of him and murdered and ate him. Classic tale of comeuppance, right? Wrong. You're still wrong. <laughs> While Cook was indeed killed during an attack on the king during his second visit to the Hawaiian Islands, the story around his demise is much more interesting and does not at all involve eating him. Professor of Hawaiian history Lilikala Ke Kameelehiwa describes the story like so. Quote, Cook eventually came round to moor in the sheltered bay of Kealakekua, literally the pathway of the gods, in January 1779, where coincidentally the god Lono, a god of peace, returned annually from Tahiti to bring fertility to the people. There, Cook was met by the Lono priests, who took him to Hikiau Temple to honor him as the returning god Lono, whose emblem of crossed wood and long pieces of white kappa, or bark cloth, looked very much like the sails of Cook's ships. Well, why would the Lono priests mistake Cook for a god? It was simple. During Makahiki ceremonies for Lono, the four months of the new year, war is forbidden. Yet during this time, King Kalani Opu'u of Hawaii Island was off on Maui making war. When Cook arrived in Keala Kekua, the Lono priest called the king back to attend to the Lono rituals and to offer gifts of food and hospitality to Captain Cook. However, Makahiki ceremonies usually end in January, and so after a while, the Hawaiians began wondering and asking Cook and his men when they were leaving. <laughs> Fish and visitors spoil after seven days. Something like that, right? Yeah. Finally, Cook left Kealakekua, but a day later, off the coast of Kauaihe, Cook encountered a storm that broke the mast of the Endeavor. He limped back to Kealakekua. Lono was supposed to be able to control the winds. So what kind of god gets a broken mast? <laughs> What's the deal? <laughs> no. Folks soon began to wonder, was Cook really Lono? After all, he didn't speak our language, and he didn't bathe every day, which, in, which is an absolute Hawaiian requirement. Was he an imposter? God, white people are so gross. <laughs> then Cook lost his temper when some Hawaiians, doubting his divine designation, stole the small boat used to go ashore from one of Cook's ships. Immediately, Cook went to the rocky shores of uh, Ka'awaloa Peninsula, adjacent to Kealakakua Bay, to kidnap King Kalani Opu'u until the small boat should be returned. Cook did not know that the small boat had already been burned so that its prized iron nails could be retrieved. 
In this arrogance, Cook went with only one man rowing his own small boat and one guard to come ashore with him. When King Kalaneopu'u refused to go with Cook, the crowd surrounding the king quickly became angry. Cook's guard ran off to the small boat, leaving Cook behind, cool, and his two men quickly rowed back to the safety of their ship, deserting their captain. As Cook turned to make his way through the crowd, some enterprising fellow threw a rock at his back. When Cook groaned, the crowd shouted that he was not a god. Well, that'll do it. The Hawaiians began to stab Cook to death. Many Hawaiian families still claim the honor today. While it turned out that Cook was not a god, it was evident that with two large ships, he was certainly a high chief of some sort. Tradition demanded that his body be dismembered and the bones be put into a senate casket. Um, S-E-N-N-I-T, not, not the governing body, senate. The Lono priest took Cook's hands and his buttocks wrapped in ceremonial kapa cloth to his ship. Cook's men were horrified at the bloody bits and asked, Oh my God, did you eat him? To which the Lomo priest replied, Why? Is that what you do? Do you eat your dead? Hence the foolish rumor began. Isn't that great? I mean, I mean, well, I mean, what, wasn't the, that like a real, like, thank you. It, yeah, it's really <laughs> like, well written. And, just, and, and it's, like a, it's, it's good to know. It's very, yeah. So it's just like something that's written very accessibly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah. I love finding little things like this on on the internet so yeah that was on the national indigenous television networks website which is part of like the australian um state broadcasting service so it's like their pbs um they have a sort of a network that's awesome under their pbs that's just like on um like indigenous viewpoints and and so it's um largely like Aboriginal Australian and Torres Strait Islanders, but it also has like more broadly like indigenous perspectives. Um, Very cool. Yeah. And so that professor like wrote a like a, a special piece for February 14th being like, oh, which is I was like, for Valentine's No, it's yeah. that's that's the day. The, that's yeah. landing day. So, yeah, let's end this episode on a brighter note with one last myth nomer, the Dark Ages. You know, let's really pep it up. So I think we've definitely discussed the phantom time hypothesis before, which argues Mm -hmm. that part of the Dark Ages didn't even happen and that Charlemagne didn't exist. So right now, as we're recording this, we're actually in the year 1723. Um, Feels like it. So that's not the case, actually. Uh, But yeah, we covered that in our um, in Chronica, I think, when we talked about ages. Okay. Okay. Yeah, maybe we. Yeah, I think we did cover it in Chronica. Um, So the the, like, while that may not be the case, the conspiracy historiographer that came up with it isn't all that far behind. Much of the driving force behind calling it the Dark Ages to begin with. Granted, contemporary historians of Western Europe don't use that term anymore, and instead refer to it as perhaps the Migration Period or the Early Middle Ages. So the term Dark Ages was coined by Petrarch, or Francesco Petrarco, a 14th century Italian guy at whose feet I lay the blame for having to learn about Cicero in school. (laughs) Because he personally rediscovered a ton of Cicero's letters and essays. Thanks, Frank. (laughs) So Petrarch was a bit of a classical fanboy, and... He felt at the time he felt that the time he inhabited was ignorant and backwards relative to the light of the classical world. 
things just hadn't been the same since the collapse collapse of the Roman Empire. Jokes on him. They hadn't been the same for a long time before its collapse either. And everything since then had just been violence, chaos, and no more letters from Cicero to his boy Atticus. The one thing that the Dark Ages definitely lacked was a Roman or Holy Roman emperor in Western Europe. This power vacuum allowed for an influx of so-called barbarian tribes from neighboring areas into the former Roman Empire, which resulted in a lot of conflict and coincided with a decline in urbanism. Barbarism in this sense meant anyone who wasn't Greek, Roman, or Christian, but generally applied to Germanic tribes. So, as for the processes by which an age can gradually go dark, let's hear from Simon Wender, the author of uh, Lotharingia, A Personal History of Europe's Lost Country, which was excerpted on LitHub, and I really recommend that you go read it. But part of it says, quote, There can be few more damning or more useless terms than the Dark Ages. They sound fun in an orcs and elves sort of way and suggest a very low benchmark from which we have since, as a race, raised ourselves up into the light, with the present day using as its soundtrack the last movement of Beethoven's Ninth. But the damage the term does, the damage, but the damage the term does is immense. A simple little mental test is just to quickly imagine a European scene from that era. Now, was the sun shining? Of course not. The default way of thinking about the long, complex era that lasted from the final decades of the Roman Empire to somewhere around the Battle of Hastings is to assume it all looked like the cover of a heavy metal album. (laughs) One problem is that the older the period, the more chances there are for its material production to be destroyed. Across Lotharingia, editors note that that is one of three filial kingdoms born of the Carolingian Empire, there had been... Presumably by someone named Lothar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There has been century after century of rebuilding with the reuse of every available piece of old dressed stone with the most evidence of earlier churches and places and palaces removed in the process. In practical terms, one cannot imagine that the vast humorless bulk of Cologne Cathedral is merely the latest in a series stretching back to a Roman temple. Many of the great religious buildings of the Rhine have been a display table showing somewhat conjectural models of their ancient predecessors, usually starting with a patronizing little wooden block looking something like a skew with windy house. So so great is the weight of the Dark Ages on our shoulders that it's almost impossible not to think of the makers of this wonky church slithering about on the mud floor, cursing the way the roof was leaking and how nobody could design a door that shut properly, resigned to the occasional fiasco when the walls would simply fall in on the gurning, fur-clad, battle-axe-wielding communicants. (laughs) In practice... These now non I know, right? In practice, these now non-existent buildings would have been extremely beautiful, drawing on Roman and Byzantine models and stuffed with all kinds of wonderful stuff from the Roman Empire, which now no longer exists. This is the related problem suffered by the Dark Ages. Our towns often occupy exactly the same sites as they did then, the same river crossing, the same harbor, and are built on top of them. But there have been simply innumerable points at which older material has been destroyed. There's probably some rough mathematical calculation about how each passing century lowers your chance of anything much surviving at all. The famous fat boy of 1666, who was meant to be watching the baker's oven, but instead gorged on pies, fell asleep, and as a result burned down London, is only one of an... is only one of an elite group who caused mayhem through their momentary inattention over the centuries. So that's the end of that quote. But 
it's so there's a it's a longer excerpt on lit hub and and they have a link to the book itself um which came out last year but i thought we could end there with a little reminder that everything we find or read from the past is not just a matter of preservation but also luck and that just because you don't know what happened in a certain place or at a certain time doesn't suggest in the slightest that nothing happened see it was bright it was a bright note it was. No, I yeah. just was chuckling at the fact that we were brightening things up by going to the Dark Ages, which <laughs> I suppose reflects the very problem with calling them the Dark Ages. Yeah, pick up the phone at Simon. It's like, did you read my book? <laughs> well, thank you for listening. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else you like to listen. And don't forget to sign up for our merch giveaway, and you can find the link to the form on Facebook, where we're just The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter, at Dirt Podcast and on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. Yeah. And it's over on our website where everything else is, thedirtpod.com. And if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, you got about a week left to yep. enter. Yeah. So sign up. You might win something. And then we get to send you a nerdy shirt or mug or hat or whatever you whatever, choose. Whatever you choose. I mean, it's up to you. Stuff from our website. I we mean, can't. there's, you have, you have, Limited options, but they're yours. It's multiple choice. It's not an essay. Yeah, definitely not an essay. Can't read those. Nope. Who has the time? Not me. Not me. <laughs> Too busy making podcasts. <laughs> we love you. Goodbye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.